Hi guys, I'm Tara Lipinski. And this is Todd Kapustashi. And you are listening to the 16th episode of Unexpecting. Not to blow up your spot, but we just had to do like three takes of this little, <laughs> your first line, because we haven't recorded a podcast in a couple I weeks. I forgot how we... And you're like, hey guys. Welcome. This is Unexpecting. I'm Tara. I'm like, wait, no, we have a rhythm to this. I know. Well, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> it's been, you know, Hi guys, a little bit. Who am I? <laughs> I'm Todd Kabastashi. <laughs> you were very prepared. I'm sorry. So unless you're blind <laughs> or just <laughs> listening, we have a new location. We do. We're out of the basement. We're out of the basement. I don't know how you feel. More ways than one. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like if you think about where we were filming it in the basement, it was very moody. It was very, you know, dark paint. <laughs> the sun is now piercing through the windows. Yeah. Well, very light just to give to peel back a little bit of like the production process like you know i do like documentaries and tv and film stuff so like i had friends who just i mean we didn't hire anyone for no this we podcast. did this i don't know if we ever talked we did this podcast completely on our own we yeah. didn't use a platform we wanted full control i'm actually really proud of that because we could have at a certain point i think like signed on financially to some podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. company but we we're just like yeah we'll just do it ourselves in our our basement and Todd literally I thought about this so often I, I when you were down there I was thinking like did you ever just google how to start a podcast because <laughs> we I mean we literally did everything from scratch and had to learn how to do this which is why some of our episodes we got delayed from when we actually started filming this because Todd would just be down there and it'd be like 4 a.m. And he would be like, I can't figure it out. Like, it's not <laughs> uploading. It's not rendering. All these words, I have no yeah. idea. Well, what. that's why I got so mad in that one podcast and the question and answer when someone was like, is there a video component? You should start a YouTube channel. <laughs> it's like literally on whatever night, Tuesday, because well, they are Tuesday, Thursday. So Monday and Wednesday, I would literally be up at Til like 4 a.m. Four or five in the morning sometimes yes. making sure these things upload. And again, like I mentioned this, but I like have another job. Yeah. <laughs> like I know, I'm but now you're a, a podcaster. I'm not a podcaster. But so. I feel like I love, you, you know, it's weird. It's been, I don't know if I don't even, I don't even know time anymore, but it's been a little bit and actually sitting in these chairs and talking again, I feel like it's like our own little therapy. Yeah, we're in a new space and, you know, we should just tell the listeners that obviously our our first journey for a child is over um, and we have Georgie in the house, but we still do want this to be, you're so passionate about this world, I am too now, mm -hmm. um, we do want this to be a fertility, infertility, IVF podcast still, but we also have Georgie in the house, so it would be fun to kind of mention her too, but I know that's tough because a lot of people who are listening are still like trying to get a child. So that can be triggering. So I, I think we're trying to figure out like the right balance for that. Too. Right. I think for, you know, for the both of us, I think the trigger warning is important just to, to make sure everyone knows that we obviously, yes, have a child now, but never forget, you know, and I say that a lot into, in my Instagram post, I see you, I hear you, I know what it feels like to be in the trenches and to be waiting. And to be honest, it is a, an abrupt transition for me. I, I, you know, how do you identify as a person, you know, in the way that the last five years, you know, I had an infertility diagnosis, a medical condition that that's, that was my life. So, you know, do I connect with, you know, a new mom that 
tried naturally, carried a pregnancy easily and didn't go through five years of infertility, you know, no, I connect much more with the person that's, you know, messaging me about how many follicles they have going into their, to, to their retrieval. Like that has been my life for so long. So for me, it's important to really be sensitive to the entire community, but it also understanding that there's also a lot of people listening to this podcast. And I see it on the back end from messages and comments of are listening that a have never gone through infertility or just you know, a fan of my skating maybe and want to see what our life is like now or people that are just, you know, have a family member going through infertility or just tuning in. A lot of people love the dynamic between me and you and just the couple part of our relationship. So I just feel like for us to to be aware and let anyone know, hey, we're going to talk about Georgie right now, you know, fast forward to <laughs> the next section if you need to. Yeah, and I, you know, to that point, we're gonna have actually Dr. Beck on the podcast today, which is I think is a fitting first guest. It's a fitting guest to have after we sort of ended that fertility journey right. too. So um, we will get to her, but we do want to talk a little bit about Georgie. So yeah, fast forward for a couple minutes to Dr. Beck's interview if if you want to. Um, so yeah, what are the updates? We've had Georgie in the house for a couple weeks. What's it been like? Well, what's actually what's crazy is. The last, I mean, the last episode we did, it literally feels like we we filmed that like seven years it ago. It feels 100 years ago. But it was it was a couple <laughs> weeks ago. It feels like we've been, well, it is crazy though. The last episode we left off with, we brought Georgie on and it was like, you know, a week or whatever yeah. that was in. And like, I just, we I feel like we're both different people now. And it's been fun though. It has been fun. It's been an adjustment. You know, it's, it's definitely for me, just trying to navigate you know, easing into this new role. And I think obviously every new mother feels that way, but I think I'm also carrying some of my my baggage from infertility here. And I just have to, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have gone on to have children after long journeys, and it seems very common to sort of still be waiting for, you know, is something wrong? What's going to go wrong? And that's just been a little bit of an adjustment for me. And I just have to remind myself, like, stay present, stay in the moment, take one, you know, things day by day. Um, but my life was ruled by anxiety for so long that I, you know, I'm still waking up sometimes and it's awful because I don't know what's happening, but I'll wake up in the, the middle of the night, like panicked. And I have this like dread that anxiety, just doom feeling that I don't know if anyone else could relate to, but I started to get that during my fertility journey. That's when you noticed I wasn't sleeping anymore. And it was just this like, panic that would come over me. And I, I still do that. And then I, I say, okay, everything, everything's okay. I just dozed off. Everything is okay. I think, <laughs> you know, so it's just for me, I'm navigating that, but it has been, you know, there has been so many moments that have been so special, obviously. Yeah. Well, even the, I guess it was right around when we had the episode come out, but, um, we had like People Magazine, Georgie was in People, which was like kind of crazy. I feel like that day, <laughs> I don't know how you felt, but that day when we had the photographer come, you know, to do our newborn photos, which they're, they're ours, you know, it's, you know, I feel like some people think like, oh, we have People Magazine come in. Well, that's the funny <laughs> thing is I heard, I saw, maybe I'm misremembering this, but, or maybe you mentioned it to me or I read it, but someone kind of like a hater on like Instagram was like, 
making fun of the people thing or being like, oh, you're like paying to be in the magazine. It's like, no, we, we paid the, like we were going to do a photographer. Yeah. Like it's our photographer. (laughs) Amazingly because of, again, your broadcast stuff and what you did at the Olympics, like people still interested in like your life, which is awesome. Like having our picture in like people magazine, like that's a pretty cool thing. I was so proud of Georgie. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, this is so fun. Yeah. Um, Well, also too, this is probably to inside baseball, but like I didn't realize you explained this to me because I'm an idiot and I don't know anything. Being in the actual physical magazine is like a big deal. Yeah. I actually weirdly would have thought the other way, like if you're on the like online thing and like promoted online, it's like bigger than the magazine. But like even though you think of like physical magazines as like antiquated, it's still like a bigger deal to be in that. Yeah. But what it is, it's yeah, to to get space in the actual magazine. But what's funny is we missed buying the magazine. So, oh, yeah, we so don't have People it. Magazine, if you're, you're listening, <laughs> can you send us a copy? Well, my, my mom is so funny. She's like, I just don't understand why People Magazine doesn't send you a copy. <laughs> I'm like, Mom, it's, that's not really how it works, but I'm sure we can probably find one. Yeah, there's like a million one. people in that magazine. But neither of us have seen it. And weirdly, no one even, anyone I know, no one sent me like a screenshot of it. Well, they like, should have. I think well, your I mom think has been getting a lot yeah, from what yeah. I <laughs> So I'm like, can someone send us a copy? But back to- That's not also not what my mom sounds like. That's just how I like to portray her. <laughs> she does have a little Midwest accent, yeah, though. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you didn't get that. I know. She says Tad instead of Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like that day, and I want to ask you this, but I feel like there's so many moments in life that get built up and then you're living them. And I don't know if it's just, you know, I'm old and tired, but when the moment's happening, maybe I feel like not as super present or the moment didn't live up to what I wanted it to be. But that day of having a newborn photographer come over, like it was amazing. It felt like, I think for me, again, it's, you know, I'm a little (laughs) like, how is this happening? So it just felt like, wow, we're experiencing a normal part of life. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I had a, I have a funny story actually with the people at magazine shoot that I just thought of when I was walking downstairs. What was it? You're going to hate this story because I know we focus on my fashion way too much in the podcast. And we talk about my like shirts and not repeating and all that right. too much. But so I don't know if you remember this. So on the day of the shoot, Tara, like, again, never tells me anything about right. these big days. We have People Magazine, like, photo shoot with this, you know, photographer we hired. She's like, oh, like, or I think I mentioned in the morning, like, what do you, what should I wear? And you're like, oh, I, I just kind of snapped a few pictures of some of your shirts in the closet to get oh, an okay funny. from the photographer. And I'm like, okay, what shirts did you pick? Yeah. And again, Tara not really knowing my wardrobe somehow, even though I, it's probably because I only wear like the five, six, seven <laughs> yeah, we shirt, talk about my this favorites. A lot about your wardrobe. But so Tara takes pictures of these shirts that I have that are literally like five or six years old <laughs> and have, you know, people know this, like when you wash a shirt a thousand yeah. times, it shrinks, yeah. it gets like weird. So like the shirts that she had taken photos of were way too small <laughs> for me, like I tried one of them on that she took a photo of and like I came out and like the buttons were just like almost tearing apart. I'm like, I cannot wear this. And thanks for mentioning this like the morning of the photo shoot. So I'm panicking. And so I actually ran out to like the closest little area where we live that has like some stores. So this is such a long story. He's very triggered by this this experience. I'll cut to the chase here. So in my head, I'm like, 
okay, it kind of doesn't matter what these shirts cost or whatever I pick out because I'm going to return it. Like I was <laughs> yeah. going to literally get a shirt that I thought looked good, bring it home, put it on for the photo shoot, and then just like literally return drive it. back yeah. and return it. Great idea, right? Yeah. So I picked out this, <laughs> this <laughs> the sweater, shirt, the that, sweater I'm that I'm still wearing. wearing weeks later. So this he is wears what, it every day out of... When I was checking out, and this is stupid on my part, but like knowing I was just going to return it, I was like, yeah, it kind of doesn't matter what it costs. And the place was pretty expensive. Like I get some shirts right. from this place, but not very often. Right. Or you'll buy me something right. for Christmas because it's like way too expensive. So I didn't even look at how much it cost, not knowing that this is like a very nice material right. that right. costs a lot of money. So at checkout, I was like, oh my God, like this, this sweater is so expensive. Like obviously need to return right. this. Like right. I'm not on a whim. Right. I just kind of like grabbed this because it was like neutral because that's right. what they wanted. So we go home, put on this sweater. We have our photo shoot. You'll see in People Magazine, I'm wearing this like nice sweater that I picked out like 10 minutes before. And I'm like, okay, I have to return it. I don't know why, guys. I think it was the rush of the day. I kind of put it in this like pile in my closet. It got thrown in the laundry. And didn't think about it. And I washed it. Yep. And when I took out this sweater, I had the biggest panic attack. Because you know when you like wash something with tags, like the tag was still there, but it was like frayed because it had gone through the washer and dryer and can't return it and i now own it i was upset for like two or three days no no, you're still upset sometimes i hear him mumbling in the closet about this sweater (laughs) like oh the sweater i had to buy for this well no and then and then you wear it every day i'm not joking this is actually kind of funny i've worn this every three days i wear it (laughs) because i'm getting the use out of it the money that i spent on this that i didn't want to spend it's a great it's a really cute okay henley hoodie it's it's okay it's good it's for the money that i spent and i didn't really want it i didn't i i was like oh this is like white and this is what they wanted so i grabbed it It, it's and i washed it yeah (laughs) it's fine it's gonna be okay the the people shoot was fun and georgie was so cute she was so cute in all of her little outfits. And yeah, it was just those moments of being able to look at you with her and and think, oh my goodness, this is this is this is crazy. This yeah. is crazy. I think that all the time when I wake up. This is crazy that there's an actual baby in the house. Um, but you know what else is interesting, I find, is you know, we talked about all the different people that are listening to the podcast, whether it's some people are listening because they have a medical diagnosis, nothing like infertility, but the story, they feel validated by these feelings and how, you know, something like a diagnosis can change your life. But there's a lot of people that have gone through infertility or years past have, you know, children in their home and are going back to this podcast to sort of like heal. And, you know, they realize, I don't know if I ever, you know, really came to to terms or had closure um, on my own journey. But I feel like now that we're in this this phase with Georgie, I've been messaging a lot of people just that have had that experience, that have experienced fertility and are now in parenthood. And um, I, I feel like I, I'm learning so much just asking them, you know, about how they approached, you know, this next phase. Yeah. And I think too, having Georgie for these couple of weeks as we've seen each other in different lights, I mean, in good ways, also in sort of what <laughs> the last thing I'll say oh, gosh. before we God, get to our, Dr. our Beck. therapy session today is not going well <laughs> no, what is, is happening so we you know I have this criticism not it's not a criticism it's a playful observation that your singing voice isn't the best oh I know where so you're, yeah. 
when we're in the car, you know, you don't sing that often. Like if you really like a song, maybe you'll <laughs> sing. Like if a Taylor Swift thing comes on, like you'll sing and I'll just endure it and I won't say anything. Endure it. Well, no, well, you know, come on. Like, let's be real here. You know, your voice is like. Oh, my voice is terrible. It's not great. And then the second part of it, it's like you, you don't know the like cadence and like notes of a song so like when you sing the happy birthday song for instance instead of singing like happy birthday to you happy uh -huh. you'll be like happy birthday to you happy <laughs> okay. birthday okay i don't sing happy birthday like <laughs> but that. you know what i mean like the sort of like you know the key yes. is usually off <laughs> so I which this. i've you're so amazing a, a in so many this. ways your voice isn't just great it just isn't that great the unfortunate thing though that i'm realizing now though is like we talk and sing to the baby so much. Uh -huh. So like you're singing yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I looked over at him. No, actually. Yeah. I looked over at you and like your face <laughs> like made Guys, me upset. Too much and then you asked me, you're like, do you want <laughs> to take her downstairs to sing to her? Well, no, but so it's, it's, it's like twofold. It's that you're. No, you no, that's not no, what you said. It? You said, why don't you just play the song? <laughs> well, you're playing the song really loud and then singing it off key really loudly to her. And I'm also weirdly, this is so uh, parents will probably, you know, like relate to this is parents like we're exposing her to this singing voice. Like she's never going to be a musician if she's learning music. This Guys, way. I am so offended. <laughs> I am. God, I'm I'm obviously you gave it. You work so hard for this child. You can do whatever singing voice you want. But the other thing I want to point out is it's two things. It's like your singing interact. voice isn't great, but also oh, no. because you know that the child doesn't understand the lyrics. Yeah. You don't know any of the like classic nursery <laughs> rhymes. Like she'll go, I'm not kidding, guys. Yeah. She'll she'll go like <laughs> the itsy bitsy spider, the sun comes out, <laughs> down came the moon, and the spider went away. Like you're making up the lyrics, and then you'll just like keep repeating the Look, same line I didn't have in a that singing voice. I was skating, so I'm getting kind of traumatized. <laughs> I'm just getting a little traumatized by the songs and the incorrect lyrics, and then the pitch. Um, well, this is it. <laughs> you chose me. So, Love you. Yeah, I just, that's one thing I'm trying to adjust to. Yeah. As a good husband yeah. and dad. Yeah. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsors. I wanted to give you more information about Receptiva DX. I feel very lucky that I was able to take this test and remove some of the mystery out of my own fertility journey. A diagnosis of unexplained infertility is difficult and miscarriage is traumatic. So I'm thankful there's a test like Receptiva DX that can provide insight and answers that many people are desperately seeking. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you have experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Treatment options can improve the chances for a successful live birth fivefold. To learn more, please visit ReceptivaDX.com or ask your doctor if this test is right for you. All right, guys. So we have our first very special guest. Guest number one. Guest number one. 16 episodes it took us to get a guest. Yes. And it had to be Dr. Beck because Dr. Beck brought us little Georgie. <laughs> so we are so grateful and we're so excited to have her on the podcast today. Yeah. All so right. I know you have a lot of questions. 
I do. I have so many questions. And just thinking back to when we started our journey and we did all the initial testing and you saw me for, you know, the initial consult and ultrasound and everything sort of looked good. I guess I always want to ask you, when you think back to that moment five years ago, did you ever think it was going to take this long to finally bring Georgie here? I mean, because from what I know, and you tell me, most people going through IVF, obviously there's always the outliers like us, but it's usually, right, by two retrievals, you're getting success. By two transfers, you're getting success. Is that right? Um, that is true. So especially with your scenario of getting normal embryos easily, I, I didn't expect the transfers to be our challenge because grossly on ultrasound, and I'm really hyper about my ultrasounds, I didn't see anything off the top of my head that was abnormal. Like everything looked perfectly normal. And I think that's why we did a deeper dive because yes, 100%, I couldn't have predicted that it was going to be so challenging. <laughs> <laughs> we both we both aged, <laughs> both of us, since we started this journey. Well, the question I had was more, you know, how did you deal with <laughs> Tara? What did, what did you think of Tara's personality when you first met her? Like, oh boy, this is going to be an interesting fertility journey with this one. Oh. Todd, throwing me under the bus. No, Tara was great. You know what I loved is that Tara was really smart. She was educated. She asked a lot of great questions. I think what's challenging sometimes is not when patients ask questions that aren't great. It's when patients ask the same questions. I've answered it, but they ask me the same question repeatedly, hoping that I'll give them a different answer. And that's when I have a challenge because, <laughs> you know, they can ask me the same question 20 times and I'm going to give the same answer because mine is based on my experience and science. And what I guess I have a question because I think it's it's interesting to just think back. We've known each other now a half a decade, Dr. Beck, but you've seen Todd, you know, you've seen me a lot more than you've seen Todd. But what was your impression of Todd you know, throughout our journey and especially now knowing him on the podcast and knowing him in a different light now, but like, just take us back to what you thought. Be I, gentle, I, yeah. be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> what you thought of Todd. Yeah, I think what's great is that Todd was always very supportive and it was clear that he was always supportive of whatever you wanted to do. And, you know, that was really great. But to be honest, like, especially during COVID as well, like I didn't have very much interaction with Todd. I didn't really hear him speak. And so I think on the podcast, I've kind of learned like his voice and his take and his experience because I had no idea. So I think um, that's the one thing that I was telling you that my patients have really appreciated is hearing Todd's voice and the male experience through this. Because it really is something that is um, ignored and it's something that we don't experience often because, you know, most men don't come to the appointments and so they wouldn't be in every conversation. And even if they're part of the consultation, it really, every ultrasound that we did together, we had a conversation and it kind of, this, that's where we built the communication and really our plans for what we were doing next. And so I think um, that's where I've learned a lot about Todd, but it was after the fact. Well, it was hard too, because, you know, this is not news to you, Dr. Beck, but just like, you know, a lot of our journey was during COVID where it, it was just lonely for Tara to have to go to all these appointments alone. And there was kind of, I mean, I went to a lot of them sat in the car just because, you know, some of the heartbeat scans, like we're not going to probably be good news. So I wanted to be there. But, you know, yeah, it's like you were doing so much of this on your own, especially because of of COVID, which was just. Difficult. Yeah, it was it was such a weird time. But I, I like love hearing from Dr. Beck and hearing what her patients say and that, you know, even the fact that men are listening to the podcast, I think is incredible, you know, and I just think whether it's 
you know, a husband, a wife, a partner, whatever it is, just having someone who maybe has a different approach like you did be able to support their partner through the journey is so important. And Dr. Beck, I feel, I feel like we did, well, at least I feel like we did a good thing when Dr. Beck's like, no, I think it's like helping partners be supportive of the person going through the actual treatment. Well, but also, you know, like we've, we talked for 15 episodes about this, but like a lot of my shortcomings, like I'm sure you see it too, Dr. Beck, and obviously don't have to mention any specific <laughs> patients, but I'm sure you get a lot of women who are showing up alone or where you can probably tell that they don't have a lot of support from their spouse. Um, and I, I was that person occasionally, you know, it's hard. It's like, again, during COVID, you were going to these appointments alone. Like you had I no was, idea. I was also, again, we talked about this so much, but like during COVID, like we had this one note life that seemed to be just about fertility. And that was like very hard right. for me where it seemed like every conversation over dinner was only about fertility. We woke up and went to bed talking about right. it. So that became hard for me. And I think, I hope that, you know, men who listen to this podcast sort of understand they're not alone in that, but you still have to kind of fight through it to be supportive through these journeys because they're so difficult on, you know, the person who's, you know, you're shouldering, Getting, yeah. you're shouldering like 90% of the burden on it. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that it's true, um, Todd, but even before COVID, you know, not every partner is 100% involved and that's okay because I think there's this idea for men, they just have to provide a sample on the day of an IUI or for IVF or that their sperm, if they're smoking pot or cigarettes, you know, I'm always the doomed singer where I have to tell them they have to stop the pot, cigarettes, hot tubs, and they have to clean up their lifestyle for at least three months before. Men hate hearing that because they always think they can just stop at the week of. And so um, I think when they start to learn, you know, they have a real part in this that if they don't, they're not going to have great embryos. And the blast formation really comes into play on day five, six or seven when we're doing an embryo. And that's where we see a drop off. You know, I think men are now starting to learn a little bit more about their part and how important their lifestyle is as well. But um, it is funny that sometimes when uh, my patients do ask me to call in their husbands on a conference call so they can hear come directly from me. And so I do do that. Or even if I send them to the urologist, you know, the men will come back and tell me that the urologist will say that everything's great. They are looking perfect. They don't have to change a thing. And then we'll actually schedule a conference call with the urologist and I'll have the urologist, you know, repeat the recommendations with all of us on. And then they actually come to Jesus and like tell them like, these are the changes they have to make because it makes an impact. That's actually crazy that you have to like call in or call, you know, spouses and tell them like, no, this is coming from me. It's not just coming from right. But I, the patient. To be honest, I feel like there were times I was thinking like I should call Dr. Beck and have Well, Dr. luckily Beck. it never got to that with no. us. Like no. I always did you eventually did. trust Tara because I knew Dr. Beck was yes. telling her these things. Yeah. But God, thank God. Dr. Beck never like FaceTimed me and was like, Todd, I did say this. Out of the hot tub. No Peloton. No Peloton. <laughs> I never wanted him on the Peloton bike, Dr. Beck. We would fight over it constantly. Well, knowing Tara though, Dr. Beck, to be fair, I hate, I, I shouldn't say this to contradict all of what we're saying. However, Tara would, I bet, take things that you said and then like bump them up by like 15%. So if it was like, yeah, Dr. Beck, I could, I could just see Dr. Beck being like, yeah, tell Todd maybe not to like go running for more than 30 minutes she'd be like you can run for five minutes a day so she would kind of like exploit i, think I some probably of it, did but. it's fine <laughs> todd's probably like why was dr beck telling me i couldn't do all these i things? actually should have been calling dr beck and been like hey i know you didn't say this <laughs> um 
you know, thinking back to our journey to Dr. Beck of us, you know, we, I was in that office more than I was many places for five years. From your perspective, how invested was the office? Because I feel like by the end, I just had from where I would get my my blood drawn to the nurses to the, you know, the, the OR to every part of that office, I felt so much love. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, but here, because you see the same team and you see my team, everyone is really invested because people really don't stay in my office that long. People do have their <laughs> procedure, have their transfer and they're successful. And so, you know, um, but I do think that people were really invested. I mean, you could tell, like everyone was so thrilled when um, you finally did achieve success, but you know, everyone was really there for you. And even the nurses, you know, I know you have special relationships with people who are in our practice and who are maybe no longer in our practice, but it's because everyone is really 100% invested. I think that's what I love about my team is that we're here seven days a week. We, you know, do everything seven days a week because we don't want to compromise any one cycle. But I think because of that, this, these are the people that we attract for our team. People who are here want to be here and they want our patients to achieve success. I guess thinking back to, uh, you know, I obviously have so many emotions in that office that I reflect upon and being in that room, you know, getting scanned and also the four times that you had to tell me there was no fetal heartbeat you know, obviously the impact is is on on me and Todd and, you know, our future. But how hard is it as a doctor to, and especially when it's a journey like this where it was, you know, you had to repeatedly go through this deja vu phase with me. You know, we've never talked about that. I just think it's so interesting to think, how was this journey on you and in those moments having to say to to a patient or to me, there's no fetal heartbeat again? Yeah, no. You know, what was that like? It's obviously like devastating. It's challenging for me just as much because that's the last thing we want to see. Um, Dr. Beck, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I know. I know. But I think that whenever patients are going through it, I really try to figure out, take a step back, look at everything to make sure we didn't miss something. It's probably just so hard. You know, like, like I said, it's like, you know, the people that hear that, just the spiral of emotions, but I've thought of it often over the five years of how hard it is for you, you know, right. you're, you're setting us up for success. You're telling yourself like, okay, we've, we've come up with this plan. It's, it's got to work and we're, right. you know, it, and it sometimes just doesn't right. and that's life and it's got to be though so difficult. I think that's the biggest, it, it really is because it's the bottom line is you can go through everything and like, make sure you didn't miss something. But at the end of the day, there's nature and there's no control over that. But I think the other part is like at the moment of, I am not emotional, of course I'm emotional now, but I'm not emotional at the time of because you don't want to take it away from the patient because the focus always has to remain the patient and not anyone else. But I do think it is a challenge. Yeah. There's got to be pressure too, right? I mean, like, I don't know, just especially with the, like we at a certain point were it was like we had to have this child some way, somehow, <laughs> and we put so much pressure on ourselves to have it. Like, I'm sure 
the doctor feels that too. And so you walk into that, you know, heartbeat scan and it's like there, obviously Dr. Beck was massively invested after right. three, four years too. So there's, you know, she's almost going through it with us in a way. Right. And has to deal with the, obviously the emotionality of the whole thing too. But it doesn't have to be with the third or fourth. It's with everyone. Like even with the first one, <laughs> like, oh my God, what happened? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really is. And I guess like that, just thinking of pressure, I mean, obviously you're so good at your job and you can probably do all of this with your eyes closed. And I always felt just in such good hands when we go into a transfer. I just, the way that you approach things, um, I just felt so confident in, in, in that. But I guess the question I have is, since it was such a long journey, did you ever feel that pressure or feel those nerves during you know, going into a transfer or waiting? Of course, like every time. <laughs> but you know, I think what I relied on, to be honest, is the fact that we did every single test possible. It's not like we ever just like put one in and just went to see whether or not it worked. We really went back each time. Like we went back, looked at everything one more time and reassessed to make sure we didn't miss anything. Is there any other testing we could do? But at the end of the day, we like literally tested you for everything. There was nothing more to test you for. And then it's like what nature would give us. Like, you know, you know, at a certain point you hit a wall. And so then you hope. My uterus just didn't want it. <laughs> right. Because your tests, you know, when your tests come back normal, because if they hadn't, then we'd have our answer and we'd say, okay, well, you shouldn't be doing this. But when things come back normal, of course, you know, we're going to try, but we wouldn't just try just to put it in and say, let's pray, <laughs> you know? And what about, what would you say? Because I think some people watch this journey and I always remind them when they say they're starting IVF that you know, it's not a perfect science, but the odds, you know, jump up dramatically from trying naturally. What percentage would you put us in for our journey of an IVF journey? Are we in the 1%? <laughs> okay, so you, I, I, you definitely were an outlier in terms of most people your age, you know, if you were to have a success 60% per cycle, you would hope after two transfers, you'd have a life birth or maybe a third transfer. But, you know, that's kind of it. If it doesn't happen, like that's not the norm, especially when your tests come back normal. It's different if you have abnormal tests and I'm advising you and telling you these tests aren't normal. I don't recommend an embryo transfer. I really have concerns about you to carry. But when everything is coming back normal, that's when it becomes, you know, really hard. Yeah. And I think it's probably hard for you too, because you see so many patients. And like you said, usually by the second or even the third at worst case scenario, you know, transfer, you're having success, but to go off of all the testing we did and, you know, cause I feel like one of the other great things that I loved about our relationship is that, you know, I would come to you frantically, you know, you know, when we have a failed retrieval, like Dr. Beck, am I able to make you know, quality embryos with Todd and you even in failure, you were able to say from, you know, like, I know, you know, you gave me so much reassurance. I know you can, you will be able to, which we did. So I always feel like you were very blunt with us when it came to things. And if that wasn't the case, you would have told us very early on. How do you take that approach with your other patients? Are you, do you try to just be as direct as possible? It's not dark to be mean, but I think when you are you provide information and you educate specifically based on their 
medical records, people are really open to it. So when there are times where I do an IVF cycle and you look at the eggs, how they fertilize or if they're fractured or they die right on the day of fertilization and they, you can't make a blastocyst to save your life, even if we change the protocol, change the trigger time, change the stimulation, there are times where I tell people, advise them that, you know, I don't recommend doing IVF again. And I think that however painful it is for patients to hear, patients after the fact are usually appreciative that I've been really honest because, you know, they're relying on me to give them that information. So I think transparency is really key. I don't really sugarcoat because I'm really trying to provide the information. And at the end of the day, we need to know, like, what would we do differently? And can we do this? And should you be doing this? It must be hard, though, too, because I kind of remember when, you know, we were having these conversations, Tara and I, you know, separately from conversations you guys were having. But eventually, you know, both Tara and I were like, we're not sort of figuring out why these embryos aren't taking. Maybe we should look into surrogacy. And I think probably around that time you were also yeah. saying that to Tara. So it must just be hard, too, because you know how much Tara wanted to carry. Um, and that was sort of the dream. And then to have to tell a patient that you know, can't be fun, just these hard realities, especially when we had gone, you know, that was year, I don't know, three and a half or four when those conversations started. So right. it just must be hard as a doctor knowing a patient wants something so badly, but being like, hey, we might go six, seven years and you're still trying this, like there's another avenue with surrogacy. Right. But to be crystal clear, there are some patients right off the bat, I will tell them that they need a surrogate. The minute I meet them, I know, like when you do an ultrasound, you examine them, they can they won't be able to carry. And I have had those conversations with patients. Obviously, they're not happy because everyone doesn't dream of having a baby through surrogacy. Like, that's not anyone's first idea. But um, I just want you to know, like, I don't do a transfer if I don't think there's a potential to have success. If I think that someone really needs surrogacy, I will bring it up. There are times where I brought it up at the initial consult where I tell them, like, immediately, like, we, I can help you have a genetic child but you won't be carrying this child. Yeah, it's interesting too to hear you say that, Dr. Beck, because we've talked on the podcast so much about, we preface like everything on our podcast because look, people are, as they should be, very sensitive to some of the, the language that's used in this world and some of the situations people get in. But to hear you say like, yeah, it's not everyone, it's not most people's dream to like jump to surrogacy. Because I think we're always prefacing on the podcast, well like, but it's fine. Like if you have donor eggs or donor sperm or you adopt, like there's all these options to start a family, but- I mean, I think, again, for us, like, you really initially wanted to care. Yeah. You wanted that experience. Like, we wanted our own biological children. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of people who walk into those clinics want. Yeah, I think there is something to, you know, I had to grieve through that. And I eventually got to the point where the trauma of miscarrying so many times over, you know, ruled the dream and also being pregnant <laughs> in the way that I, I had been was not enjoyable. So it sort of lost its charm. But I do think every, even people that I talk to now through the podcast, everyone has to grieve these certain facts of, of you know, donor egg, donor sperm, surrogacy. Um, and then we're just grateful there's, there's options. On the flip side, I do have patients who walk in wanting a surrogate. And so we call it social surrogacy. And our practice does not do social surrogacy. So for women who have no medical indication for it, we don't do it simply because you don't want to be pregnant. Hmm. Well, that's, that's interesting. A, yeah, I didn't realize that. I never even heard of social surrogacy. Oh, social surrogacy. Yes. There are people who ask for social surrogacy. That's And the reason we don't do that is when a surrogate is carrying a pregnancy, they're putting themselves at risk. 
Every pregnancy, you could have had multiple healthy pregnancies, but you're at risk of preterm labor, gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, you could lose your uterus. I mean, bad things can happen very quickly in pregnancy. So that's why we don't do it unless there's a medical indication. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Back to our story, though, because I always wanted to ask you this. While we were waiting for Michaela's result her beta to see if it was positive or not I thought about you many times because I feel like again we were all in this together there was so much pressure (laughs) there weren't a lot of answers especially since we did so much testing which like you said you would have come to us in the beginning if you thought oh Tara you need to be using a surrogate You, you didn't because we couldn't find anything but Finally, then we we know that the surrogate has carried pregnancies and if it didn't work in the surrogate then it was sort of very telling or if the same thing happened. So during that two week beta, I just like would have loved to like be in your mind at certain times. Like, what were you thinking? Well, there was definitely a (laughs) countdown in my office and two of the coordinators, you know, well, were counting down and telling me repeatedly. And I, I'm like, yes, I'm aware. Like 10 more days. Yes. Nine more days. Yes. Like every day they was like, okay, tomorrow. I'm like, no, I know. I'm well aware. <laughs> so, I know yes, this. We were all well aware. <laughs> yeah. I definitely was like drinking wine the <laughs> night before, just like praying that it was going to be good. But I mean, that would have been really bad for us though. Right. Dr. Beck. I mean, because we had a, uh, a reoccurring issue with Tara right. holding these pregnancies. And then if that same sort of cycle would have happened with Michaela, I mean, then it would have been some embryo issue, obviously, right? Right, or it could just be like nothing is 100%, and we were in that, you know, 40, 30% chance or 40% chance where it wouldn't have worked. But um, And have surrogates had no pregnancies? Uh, absolutely. There are times every surrogacy pregnancy does not result in a successful pregnancy. Surrogates still have no, no beta, positive beta, or they have miscarriages, and that can really happen. The, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is endometriosis. We talked so much about that on um, our our podcast so far. And I think that when I came in, my very first appointment, you were able to see on the ultrasound just indicators that made you believe, along with some of the things I was telling you, that I had endometriosis. And you take that very seriously um, for for impact on fertility. And I think a lot of clinics still don't a hundred percent feel that way. Sometimes, you know, I, I get messages and I'm not a doctor, so I want to hear it from you, but I get messages where it's like, Oh, my doctor's like, we don't need to do a surgery before, you know, a retrieval or a transfer. Like we're bypassing it all in IVF, which as we know is not the actual case, but how often do you see patients misdiagnosed with endometriosis? So it's not either It's often. And I really feel that a lot of the quote unexplained infertility often comes down to endometriosis, unfortunately. So as you know, one in 10 women have it. More women have endometriosis than have diabetes, but there are signs. And so women who have cysts who don't ovulate properly, who have a ruptured cyst, they're oftentimes told that they have PCOS and they don't. Like I wish they had PCOS, but they don't have PCOS. So they don't have a lot of follicles and there's actual physical findings you can find. When you have a patient with a lower AMH or ovarian reserve than you would anticipate, when someone who's never had pelvic infections or surgery and their uterus is really deviated to one side, or there's a real discrepancy in their ovarian activity or between the right and the left, everything in our body should be symmetrical. It's one of the first things I think about. But there are women who actually have real ultrasound findings of like a chocolate cyst or an endometrioma, and they're still told, oh, you're fine. You can just try IVF and leave those place in place. We know those cysts 
the presence of those cysts, one, can be toxic to the follicles, but more importantly, it prevents those ovaries from responding well and it affects the egg quality. So for myself, it's not just misdiagnosed, it's undiagnosed. And so I think that I'm really happy there's a lot more information like your podcast. You are helping a lot of women. Um, I've gotten a lot of inquiries whether or not they have endo, they don't want to do fertility, they just want to know whether or not they may have endometriosis or because it hasn't been like they suspect it, yet they're told they don't have any issues. A lot of women are placed on birth control pills when they have irregular cycles or pain and they're told they're really getting band-aids and they're, no one's trying to figure out what the problem is. And I think that that's really important because I always tell every woman that I meet who suspects they have endo, if you address the endo in the right hands early enough, hopefully you'll never need me. So if you're young and you have endo in your 20s and you correct it before it's caused anatomic damage or effect on your ovaries, hopefully they'll never need a fertility specialist. Dr. Beck, you saw over the years, I really tried to educate myself and I could like read the scans along with you, you know, so I feel like maybe- Dr. Beck, she's always constantly bragging about this. So feel free to shoot her down. <laughs> no. She thinks she can be, become okay, like wait. an embryologist. Wait, I'm like, you okay. realize there's like schooling that- No, no. A lot of schooling that is associated with that. I'm joking about that, but I'm just saying, well, Dr. Beck, this will bring you in on our, our, our disagreement. Todd doesn't believe that I could read the scans. No, she's actually- very good at reading scans. And so I always had the screen and I actually educate women about like when, how to read the scans. And as you know, like, cause we did it for so long, uh, we would like, but my best, um, memory is when you were, I can't recall where you were, but do you remember when you FaceTime me with the ultrasound? Yes, we were doing a, just so the audience knows we were doing, um, I was, I was away for a work event and we had to do a cycle while I was working. So I FaceTimed Dr. Beck. Okay, go on. And Tara read the ultrasound correctly. <laughs> Sorry. It was great. And it was accurate. And so had I, she not FaceTimed it, it was actually Tara's pickup that she read the ultrasound correctly. And I was really grateful because we it wouldn't have been accurate otherwise. So Todd, I do think that um, the education component of empowering women to know their bodies like read the ultrasounds, which is why we go through it. But Tara really picked it up. Most women can't distinguish the shades of gray on the ultrasound machine. Tara was really good at it. Like she would say, is that a follicle? I'm like, no, it looks like a follicle. It's actually a blood vessel in cross section. <laughs> so I know, see, you just got schooled. <laughs> <laughs> All right, she, she, she read one scan. Oh, stop it. Good for you. I guess I had just one more thought because, you know, people listening probably want to know, but we talk about the unicorn cycle of that time. You know, we had some failed retrievals Then I finally got surgery for my endometriosis. And then we switched up our, the protocol. And what I, when I loved about you is that I feel like you w will try things, you know, that <laughs> I remember we did the same medicine for three or four retrievals. And then you're like, oh no, we're doing all menopure, yeah. like straight up menopure. And I was like, Dr. Beck, like this feels like another variable. Like what? And you're like, no, we're getting so much, like I'm getting really good results with this. Um, but that was our unicorn cycle. Mm -hmm. Like were you in shock when we got those results? Um, I was in shock because for your age, you got so many normal embryos. That was a true outlier. I mean, you were an outlier on the good and the bad. So when we were doing our IVF right. cycles, you're a huge outlier. Like most women your age do not get that many normals. Most get zero or one. So that's where you were an outlier. And then on the flip side for the transfers, obviously you were an outlier as well. 
but um, 100%. But for the initial, even though we're doing the same medication, we're changing your trigger time. So remember, because we would apply what we learned from the embryology lab to avoid any sign of a fractured or post-mature egg or abnormal fur. So I actually change your trigger time in the initial transfers, but then when we switched to the Menopur only, um, we still applied what we learned, but yes, 100%. <laughs> Yeah. Anyone listening to that's in the midst of it all, I, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, my doctor really doesn't tell me what happened after the retrieval other than how many embryos you get. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I would have a report from Dr. Beck of exactly what the eggs look like. Did we have post-mature right. Did we have fractured eggs? Whatever it was, it's so important to get this information. And just one last question. I think of it now. I, I see it a lot with so many women that get DNCs. And I felt that I was in good hands with you when you would do your DNC with me. I feel like this is the one tidbit of information that might be helpful for women knowing they have a DNC, they go to their clinic, they get it done. I know that you were very careful the way that you would perform that. Can you just tell me what you would do differently to help prevent scarring? So it's the same thing that I do, or if someone is going to have uh, done edit with their GYN, I insist it has to be ultrasound guided which means that you have an ultrasound guiding the procedure. So you do, you place a suction catheter. You're, most DNCs are done blindly where you put in a curette, which is like this sharp metal instrument, and they, it's just blindly scraped and then it's suctioned out and then you're done. I don't believe in that. I really believe in order to preserve any, your uterus and so that you don't develop scar tissue and to make sure you get all the tissue is to have an ultrasound the entire time on your abdomen while we place a suction. And so you literally see the sac collapse, suctioned out, so everything's gone. And then you do a light a scrape to remove the remainder and it's all under ultrasound guidance. So you know, no retained products of conception. There, you, you've heard of women where they do a DNC and they have to get a repeat DNC because there's leftover tissue and that would never happen if you had an ultrasound. You also, when you do it blindly, sometimes you can, you're a little bit too aggressive. You don't have to scrape as much. If the sac had come out, you wouldn't scrape. So I really just like to place a suction catheter inside, watch the suction catheter collapse it, and then remove it so that when you're doing the DNC, so you're avoiding any scraping, especially in someone who has endometriosis, you're at a higher likelihood of having scar tissue uh, because of the inflammatory environment. You can have the best surgeon, but that can happen. So that's why I'm really careful about how we do the DNC. So I always recommend ultrasound guided DNCs. Okay. That's a good tip. Also, just going back to like what you had said previously about, I thought it was so interesting when you were like, you know, you, Tara was an outlier with the good and the bad. Is that part mm -hmm. of what made our journey so confounding is that you know obviously we were older you know you at a certain point turned 40 <laughs> during our um journey but you you were great at like producing high quality eggs but then like when these transfers happened they didn't was that just hard for you like have, had you seen sort of our experience before and sort of what we were good at and what we weren't good at i i have but definitely not often so <laughs> it was very confounding in that um Tara didn't have a ton of eggs, but the eggs that she had were excellent quality and that she, pretty much everything would turn into high quality blastocysts because we only touch high quality blastocysts. And then a lot of them would be genetically normal. Most women don't have that. So that, you know, when you see that, you're like, wow, you know, you don't have a lot, but the quality is excellent. So who would anticipate that the uterus would have an issue? Like usually you'll find that on both sides. Someone, it's a challenge. It's you will go through cycle after cycle, hoping for one normal, and you finally get your normal, and then you do the million dollar workup on the uterus, and then you figure out if the uterus is okay or not. But that 
Yes, Todd, to answer your question, <laughs> it was really hard because you wouldn't expect to get a lot of high quality blastocysts because usually when someone has severe endo that's affecting the uterus from implanting, then you're not going to have a lot of normal embryos, which Tara did, which is, you're right. Like, I think we would have suspected a lot more that there was a bigger issue with the uterus had we um, had, we had a more of a challenge getting normal embryos. Was it a relief for you when Tara did sort of pull the trigger and decide to move forward with the surrogate? Because I know you had just mentioned it before. You know, I think it took a little pushing, obviously, to get you to commit to that. Well, I mean, I feel like, to be honest, Dr. Beck, me and you were on the same page. Our story had so many ups and downs, and I feel like she was always really honest with us of, hey, you know, I felt like Dr. Beck, every time I asked her, she's like, no, like, I don't think you have a problem where you can't carry a pregnancy. You know, we're we're looking at all these results. But I think for both of us, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Dr. Beck, but, you know, once we got the septum removed and the same thing sort of happened again, I think that's when we both, I mean, I feel like that's when right. we both were like, we can't keep doing this. I think it's when you had your second endo surgery and then it happened again. That's when I really felt like, we have to kind of consider some alternatives. I know we kind of thought about it. We like had a conversation, but yes. I, Cause I felt like that was, you know, like we found the aha, like, oh my gosh, this was it. We missed it. And this is going to be a game changer. I know it was a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. I thought that was the Thanks one. Thanks for bringing that up. Todd. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> we prefaced again, a lot on the podcast about the cost of all of this and just look, you're, people get priced out of like these procedures. They are very expensive, especially we went, we had so many procedures and over such a long number of years, like we were so lucky to just be able to afford it. Um, how do you see, I mean, look, I think a hip surgery in 2023 is probably just as expensive as it was in 1980. I don't know. It's just like kind of the way medicine works because you guys are so specialized. The medicine's so expensive. Like there's high stakes. Like it's always going to kind of be costly, no matter mm -hmm. if it's heart surgery or, you know, fertility surgery. But do you see it like is advancement in technology going to bring the price down of just some of this? Or do you see a world in which this is more accessible to people? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot more companies that are now covering fertility that wasn't covered before. So we're seeing it now with um, a lot of the different companies are now offering like options, whether it's through the company or through different like third party sources. Um, but to be honest, there are a lot of other IVF practices that are offering lower cost IVF but those things come at a cost, you know? So it's, we are a very, um, it's a very hands-on procedure what we do. And so there are ways where you can make it less costly. And I think that for us, we as a practice have decided that we don't want to change our level of care because we find that for us to achieve the success that we're looking for, we really wanna do it our way, which you know is very high touch, but it requires a lot of people. Um, there are ways to make it cheaper. There are practices that offer, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there are ways that you can find it cheaper. And so you'll find these lower cost models. But when you go to the lower cost models, oftentimes there's like less monitoring or no monitoring. So they don't do uh, blood work. And so you wouldn't be able to tell how many of the follicles, like how's the, what's the estrogen rise or not. Um, you may have 
third parties doing your ultrasound. So you don't have a doctor doing your ultrasound, but you have ultrasound techs. And so I'm sure you've come across when you talk to other patients, Tara, you talk to people where at other practices, they don't see their doctor every time. They see a doctor of the day, but more often not, the other practices are now changing the models. People, we are looking into making it more cost effective and so to be more cost accessible, Todd. But um, this is something that nationwide, it's been a big conversation in our society. Our particular practice is not only because we really get the patients who have had multiple failed cycles, they come for their final attempt, and so we really can't change. We're not getting the patient who's coming to us for the first time IVF. It's pretty rare. So, you know, um, given that, there are um, practices that are really focusing on trying to make it more cost-effective, but by doing that, it means that you're not going to have a physician doing your ultrasounds, and you may not have a reproductive endocrinologist managing your cycle. You may have an OBGYN who is, you know, has offsite training and not is not fellowship trained, but there are a lot of other models that are doing this that are much more low cost. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. And I think the point too of just companies covering this stuff, it's it's happening a lot. It seems like now even we have friends who are doing not only just like IVF, but you know, just egg retrievals and, and freezing, freezing egg, eggs. Yeah, freezing eggs and stuff. But I think the cost of that when they're doing the companies, when they're changing that, I do find that the insurance companies and companies don't understand how they're increasing the cost of medicine and fertility by doing that. And the reason for that is when patients don't feel, they feel like it's free. They actually, if a cycle's not great, people are more cost sensitive. Like if I say, this isn't an ideal cycle, I'd rather you stop. Let's try a different protocol. I know you can do better. A lot of patients, when they're not uh, price sensitive at all because it's covered by insurance, will say, no, let's just do it. And we'll just go through it. And so you'll find that a lot of times, even when it's covered, the reason I get patients after they've had coverage and they now have to pay cash is because they went through multiple bad cycles, used up all of their coverage because they didn't weren't trying to get successful. They weren't have, trying to focus on success. They were just trying to get through a cycle. And so I feel that when you're doing that, you're actually overall, like nationally, this is like a much more sociologic um, answer is that you're actually increasing the cost of fertility. But the other thing is the, they have to have fertility specialists or someone help consult these insurance companies when they're doing it, Todd, because what I've also seen is that they some of the requirements don't make sense. Like some of the insurance companies require you to do a certain number of IUIs prior to an IVF cycle. Well, if someone has really compromised sperm. And IUI is not going to help. You have to go through three cycles. This woman is in her late 30s. Then you're going to make it really impossible to have success once we get to IVF. That's interesting. Yeah, there's like so much nuance to... Yeah, yeah there's a lot of nuances. We were one of the last people to be acquired by private equity because we were tr really trying to hold out. But the reason we ended up selling was um, during covid one of the biggest challenges we had is we couldn't get supplies. And so when you couldn't get supplies because they were saving it for the bigger network. So you have much higher purchasing power when you're large network with, rather than just a mom and pop shop. That really affected us during COVID. Like we had to really, you know, ration everything in our office, which is terrible. We've never had to do that before. And so that was one of the reasons where we felt like we had to be part of a larger network. And so when you see this, the private equity companies, I'm not saying they're bad, but they're really focused on finances and making things more efficient. And so we've, you know, as medical director, I've been really, um, I've protected the practice and the practicing the way we practice. But it is something that I've seen a real change in our field 
that a lot of doctors have changed how we practice, you know, because we're told not to see patients. We're told to give our ultrasounds to ultrasonographers, that they want us to do more consults rather than actually be hands-on with the patients, which I think is really going to be a detriment. It's not going to affect people who just have tubal factor or is young or PCOS, but for the women who are in their late 30s, early 40s, with like nuances that are a little challenging, that's where it's going to be a real big loss. All right, last question. Are you ready for baby number two, Dr. Beck? (laughs) (laughs) Is Dr. Katz ready for baby number two? (laughs) You probably missed me this year, didn't you? No, I did miss you. It's been like great seeing you again. But um, yes, I think I'm definitely ready. I hope Dr. Katz is ready too. (laughs) Yes, we're all ready. The team is ready. ready. And we owe Dr. Beck a- Yeah, we owe Dr. Beck a a big thank you you for for helping us bring Georgie here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your trust because I know you guys could have done anything, but it really meant a lot that you guys stuck with me. So thank you. We love you, Dr. Beck. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. (laughs) Beck. All right, bye guys. Oh, TK, I appreciate her coming on so much. I feel like just seeing her, you know, talk about our journey and be so vulnerable about everything. I don't know. It was special. It kind of feels full circle in every way. Yeah. And it's interesting to see her get emotional over the heartbeat scans. You you do forget that these doctors are human beings and not just infertility doctors, but any kind of doctor has failure probably daily. I mean, that's a crazy thing. It's like a lot of doctors probably get like bad news or patients die, like doing hearts or whatever it is. Like, they have to deal with this a lot and you sort of think that they get conditioned to it and don't have these emotions, but they have to. Obviously. Yeah, they're, they're on human. the journey so with us. It is crazy just to see Dr. Beck get so emotional over, you know, those scans because she obviously felt them, even if right. it didn't seem like in the moment. You know? But yeah, I mean, she's she's on, like I said, on the journey with us, which, you know, we come home and we're dealing with the direct loss. But um Oh, it made, it was it was really sweet to have her on. But I I feel like the one thing, I don't know how you feel, like the takeaway here <laughs> is we were really outliers. We were in that like 1% group of people that go through IVF and have a journey as long and as, you know, so many different obstacles. Um, so it was just interesting to, to kind of hear Dr. Beck talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I forget because I was so, you know, I'm still so immersed in that world. And for so many years, I followed all of these quote unquote long haulers. But I guess if I really think about it, what was it like 200, 300 people that I follow? I don't even know, but it's not like I was following thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, you know, this is a niche group. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Beck's one doctor in one city and maybe she sees a couple cases like us, like every couple of years or something. Um, so I, I don't, I guess there aren't that many but like you said, it's weird because you get so many messages where it feels like, oh, man, everyone's yeah. going through this. But then you hear her be like, uh, you know, yeah. you guys are one of the, you know, craziest stories that I've had in a long time. Yeah. Um, that's interesting to hear. Well, we put our best foot forward, Dr. Beck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's also weird is like we need to like end this episode in some way. But like we had these sort of I hate to call them cliffhangers because it's like our life. But we kind of ended a lot of episodes on like mysteries or like oh we had this transfer what's gonna right. happen we don't really have a, a, cliff a cliffhanger for this. no we could just make up like you know dr beck told us on the uh, after the call <laughs> that she was going skydiving so will dr beck, beck. make it skydiving <laughs> make it to another day 
Will Dr. Beck die skydiving? Oh, that's terrible. No, she's not skydiving. She's not skydiving. What other cliffhanger can we come up with? I don't know. You were always good. I mean, but what's so crazy is our cliffhangers, it's not like we had to think about them. No, they weren't like contrived cliffhangers. No, but it it really was just the next step of our real fucked up story. (laughs) Yeah, so maybe it's just nice we don't have one, so... We're going to end the episode. All right. Well, this was fun, TK. Yep. Till next week. Thanks for listening to Unexpecting the Podcast. Please subscribe, leave a review, and follow Unexpecting Pod on Instagram for info about upcoming weekly episode releases.